Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I know, I know you all want to hear your Kion Wolf intro, but I couldn't write one for her today because she's still got a cold. And we're all being worn down by this election season. If I had known what this election season was going to be like back in January, I would have gotten on a very complicated psychoactive medication that I'm currently not on. However, it's just another day or so to go, and it'll all be a dark, dark dream. Later in the show, uh, John Dankosky will come in, and he and I will share our dark, dark dreams of this election with you and update you on all kinds of last-minute things, none of which will make you feel very good about your democracy. And then uh, towards the end of the show, uh, Chris, o- Chris Ostendorf, a freelance writer in L.A., uh, he's got a great piece in The Daily Dot about um, how movie theaters could be a more attractive place for you to go. But we're going we're to begin with Nicholas Carr. Uh, he's been with us before. He writes about technology and culture. Uh, he's the author of uh, several books, including The Shallows, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and currently The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. So we're talking to Nicholas Carr about The Glass Cage. We should say as a, an equal time issue next week, we're going to have Nicholas Cage on to talk about The Glass Car. Uh, it seems only fair. So, um, so uh, Nicholas Carr, I, I'm going to begin uh, with the story in this book that I think comes closest to summing up, if anything could, what we're talking about. And it's not the really terrifying and tragic um, airline pilot stories, although we certainly get to that. But it's the story of a cruise ship. I believe it's called the Royal Majesty. Um, tell us uh, about the Royal Majesty and what happened to it. Well, a number of, uh, number of years ago, the Royal Majesty, which was a cruise ship was on the last leg of a cruise uh, off New England. It was going from, I think, Bermuda to Boston. And, of course, it had the latest um, navigation system, computerized navigation system that was hooked up to GPS antenna. And so they, they left port in Bermuda and turned on the navigation system. And the crew, kind of as, as people do, had complete faith in this in the computer to get them to Boston. And what happened is the the connection to the GPS antenna broke and it was, you know, up high where nobody could see it. And so for hours the the ship drifted off course uh, while the crew was still had faith in the in the computer. And at one point they were even supposed to go by a locational buoy and the and a mate, the second mate or something, was supposed to watch out for it. He didn't see it, but he assumed that the computer must know what it's doing, so he assumed that he must just have missed it and didn't call up to the to the bridge and let them know that he didn't see it. And eventually, many miles off course, the the ship ran aground on a on a sandbar off of Nantucket. So, uh, who are you going to believe? All this wonderful technology or your own lion eyes. Uh, and it, it's to me, this sums up at least a, a big chunk of your premise. It's not simply that because of technological advances, because of our increasing dependence on computer-driven technology to inform us, to answer our questions, to anticipate our needs, that certain of our skills are atrophying, although I think that uh, you make a case that they very well may be, but that in some cases, in, in defiance of what we see, in defiance of what we know, we, we simply uh, 
uh, drop to our knees and, and acknowledge the superiority of these machines, even when they're not being superior. That's right. And, and the people who study this refer to the phenomenon as it's actually two phenomena. One is automation complacency and the other is automation bias. And essentially it means that when we think a computer is handling stuff for us, it, it can be anything from, you know, a cruise ship to spell check to a to a plane, we tune out. We, we simply tr- put so much faith in the computer that we don't we don't trust our own senses. We don't, you know, watch out for signs and, and kind of when we space out. And then if something bad happens, we suddenly have to take over and we're disoriented and we tend to make mistakes. Um, and just uh, back to that spell check issue, I mean, if you need any proof of that, clearly the most frequently made mistake now in online forums and places where people are, are po- posting their angry comments about things is some variant of the Y-O-U-R versus Y-O-U apostrophe R-E and, and similar kinds of there, there things, things where a spell check just won't, won't pick it up because you're, you're actually writing a, a real word. So people are just making those mistakes more and more frequently. Again, as you say, out of com- it's a co- automation complacency. Um, I, I think also another thing that's happening here is um, – there's a generational conversation that's going on around all this stuff. Oh, I just used around in the way I'm not supposed to. There's a generational co- conversation going on about this topic. That um, I, I'll tell you a quick story. So some friends of mine are bringing their daughter to her college, which is in a rural part of Virginia. They have a fully equipped, you know, modern-day Volvo or something with all, all kinds of nav stuff, I'm sure, on board. But they also, just because they're my age and also because, in fact, these things really do have a utility that's separate from, uh, from all this nav stuff, they've got, they've got you know, roadmaps with them or they've got, they've got a road atlas or something like that. And every time they take it out, their daughter yells at them uh, and, and says, that's embarrassing, that's stupid, you people are, you know, you're living in the wrong century, nobody does that anymore, please don't do that in front of me. There's a real conversation going on uh, about this that, that really – it seems to have these strange generational stakeholders. I, I don't know how much you found that in the preparation for this book. Well, it, it's definitely true that, I, I mean, young people who grow up with Google Maps or GPS um, often don't even consider alternatives, you know, whether it's using a paper map or, or actually trying to figure out where you are on your own. And, and to me, that kind of shows how quick we are not only to trust computers, but to become dependent on them and to s- simply say, well, if a computer can get me from point A to point B, then I'll just use the computer and essentially turn off my own navigational sense. Uh, and, and what happens is that we don't develop that sense. And so not only can that cause you trouble if suddenly your your GPS misleads you, as as still happens, but it also means we don't develop as much a sense of a sense of place as we used to we we become so dependent on the machine that we 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 kind of again here too tune out and don't kind of pay attention to landmarks or directions and and so you can go to a new city walk around with google maps all day leave the city and realize gee i i don't have any sense of that city at all um so there's lots of different effects that that play out and and i think there's a generational angle but but i think that everyone is kind of 
susceptible to the to the negatives. I think everybody's susceptible to the negatives, although one difference is there's a generation that kind of remembers. I mean, I just did a recent trip to Montreal, and it was the same thing. Coming back, we had a nav thing on board in the car. We were very dependent on it. It was telling us certain things. And I, I sort of remembered a world in which I had a road atlas, and I could look at three or four ways to cross the, the Canadian border and, and sort of think about if I didn't like the way things were or the way traffic was in a certain place, I could go to this other place. You know, you could sort of I, I remember that. There's a generation that that is coming, that is uh, moving into adulthood now that simply doesn't remember the alternative. Uh, and, and for them, I, I think it is a different picture. Yeah, it's I, I'm in one of the one of the fascinating bits of research I I found was was comparisons of people when they use uh, computer navigation versus paper maps. And it turns out that using a paper map actually aids you in learning direction, figuring out a, a new place. And that doesn't happen with a computer map. It, and the difference is that, you know, with a paper map, you have to actually figure out where am I on this map and where am I going to and what's the what's the route. With, with a GPS system, it's, you know, go 100 yards, turn right, go another 100, turn left, destination ahead. You don't, you don't practice uh, your own wayfinding or navigational skill. So one of the questions that I had reading the book was that uh, is, it's clear that these things, when they, these activities, when they're done by a human being figuring things out for him or herself, whether it's driving a car as opposed to a, an automated car, uh, whether it's uh, the, the same kind of navigation or, or, or pilots, or we, we know about London cab drivers and their highly developed hippocampi and all that stuff. We know that neuron clusters build up in the brain that are specific to the task, that are their, their interlinked um, networks of neurons that are specific. They help us with this task. Uh, if we don't do it that way, we don't develop them. It, it, it actually is caused by our doing them. How much transferability is the, there? though among those things in other words the neuron cluster that i build up by driving a car or driving a car with a stick shift or driving a car and using maps whatever it is that i'm doing is it good for anything except the thing that i'm using it for well i think it's uh, i i think that's a big question in in neuroscience in general how much is a specific skill transferable to other things but i think it's certainly true that the development of any kind of skill only comes from practice, from hard work, from facing challenges, from grappling with a difficult situation. And that's how we build up those neur neuronal clusters, which we often refer to as intuition, the intuition of the expert. Um, and so there's a tension between the desire of software programmers to relieve us of effort, to remove those challenges or ease us through challenges, and the fact that it's only by doing hard work in the real world, that we develop any kind of talent. And it turns out that it's actually the process of developing talent, in addition to giving us the skill, is actually what we often find most satisfying and most fulfilling about doing anything. So we're in this, uh, we want to give everything over to computers, and yet it leaves us less skilled and, I think, less satisfied with what we're doing. And Nick Carr, this book, The Glass Cage, brings up um, a, a lot of other questions, uh, not all of them confined to the world of neurology and neuroscience, including this, the whole question of technological unemployment. This is something we're watching unfold. We have questions about it. We've had questions for a long time, though, about, um, uh, about this kind of thing, but uh, about whether or not we are going to be rendered less and less necessary. But, you know, I mean, every year I see another article saying, well, it just might be the case that enough things are being done by machines and there hasn't been 
uh, a sufficient amount of invention of other kinds of employment as a result of this, these new levels of technology so that fewer people are needed to do any particular work. Where did you come out on all this? Well, it's, it's certainly true, and, and it was striking in the research, that the same concerns that we feel now about uh, computers stealing our jobs have been felt about other machines for a couple of hundred years now. And and they those fears did not pan out because whenever a new labor-saving technology relieved some people of their jobs, they actually created more productivity, which led to the creation of, of better and bigger sets of jobs. The difference... I think there are signs that what we're what we're going through now is different from what we've seen in the past, and the reason is because computers can take over many, many more types of jobs uh, than can uh, mechanical machines. So not only kind of factory laborers losing their jobs to robots, but lawyers losing their jobs to uh, text analysis software. Uh, nurses losing their jobs or pharmacists losing their jobs to to drug allocation kind of software systems. So so we, we've created this new technology that can take over lots more different types of skills and jobs. But we're not what we haven't seen so far with the computer revolution is these brand new big categories of jobs like we saw during the last century. And so we we're seeing more and more this kind of uh, loss of middle class jobs jobs with good wages in more of a polarization of work into a few people that do very, very well and lots of people who really struggle. Now, we could that could still resolve itself, and a lot of economists think we just have to wait, but there are other economists now who say this is a, re- this is a real and seemingly persistent problem, that computers can simply take over too many kinds of jobs. And it, it does, as I was reading, I was thinking, really part of the message here is it would, it's good or much better anyway to be a shareholder in a company that's making use of automation uh, to, to streamline itself and to do this kind of work and to make itself more productive and uh, profitable than it is to be a worker, which also makes you think it raises kind of equality questions and, and, and questions about the nature of the structure of a society. You might be better off in a Scandinavian country that places a lot more emphasis on equality where they're sort of saying, well, that's really good because everybody can have longer vacations, people can have shorter work hours, you know, you can use this time to do all kinds of other fulfilling things, uh, you know, but if you have a kind of zero-sum society, which is what capitalism in the USA seems like to me right now, it's sort of like, oh, yes, a lot of us will get rich and a much bigger group of us will simply have nothing to do and no work and will live in poverty. And if, if you look at, you know, some of the rhetoric that comes from the the technology executives and entrepreneurs who are who have made billions of dollars quite literally from the 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 profit concentrating effects of computer technology and computer automation you can you can take things that used to require a lot of people put them online uh, and just reap the reap the profits they often talk about well eventually we'll this will lead to a utopia where none of us have to work and we can all, you know, go out in a field and paint watercolors and stuff. And yet there's it's really hard to imagine our society, uh, even if technologically that turns out to be true. It's it's very hard to see how we get from where we are to a society where somehow all the wealth is is kind of distributed evenly among lots of people. That's that's that strikes me as being very very hard to accomplish. And also, there's also a question: 
even if we were to accomplish that, would that really be utopia? Because it turns out that there's a lot of psychological studies that show that people actually like to work. They might think they want to be at leisure, but when they when they when they have too much time on their hands, they get miserable. Uh, and so, and so, thinking about a society where there aren't any jobs is probably not a utopia. It's probably a place that not many of us would actually like to live in. Right. I mean, we might like to live in a place that had more leisure time than we have now. In other words, you know, you look at European countries and their attitudes towards vacation and time off and work day and family leave and all this kind of stuff, and they, they seem a lot more enlightened. It seems as though what's happened here is either you're part of the 1% or you're part of a group of people who have to work really hard a lot of times, a lot of the time, a lot of hours uh, in order to sustain yourself at all. Uh, and you, you kind of like to find that middle ground anyway where, where it actually freed up some leisure time. And even even among the one percent, frankly, the one of the ironies of information technology is that we're people who are working tend to be working more than ever. You're as long as you have a cell phone on you, even if it's you know in the evening or you're on vacation, you're kind of tuned in. You're often tuned into your job and still receiving messages. So there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of things are playing out that aren't exactly what we expected from the computer revolution. So in this book, we see the frequently dire consequences of this, and I think the most dramatic and dire consequences are these stories, uh, more than one story, uh, of airline pilots who, who had things automated and then suddenly needed to be on the stick and and for some reason or other didn't have the right set of instincts uh, to handle the situation and actually crash the plane. So that's a really scary scenario and it does seem to have something to do with uh, the overuse of autopilot and, and the erosion of pilots' skills and instincts. But it seems to me that some of this stuff goes on in a less dramatic, more insidious, but every bit uh, as frightening uh, area. And I think healthcare is a pretty good example. I mean, I'm constantly aware of the fact, even though I have a very good hands-on doctor who, you know, really some, you know, makes an attempt to have a personal relationship with me and knows what's going on. I'm bombarded with evidence that somehow or other I'm being quantified by a healthcare system that's reading me in certain ways and beginning to deal with me in ways that have nothing to do with ever having met me. So, and I'm assuming that this is sort of how you see some of the dangers of automation in healthcare. I think that's right, and and. As doctors are being, particularly primary care physicians, uh, are being are being required to use computers, computerized, you know, record keeping systems, and so forth. There, there's a lot of complaints coming from doctors as well as from patients. And and what we're seeing, and this is again a common theme with with automation, is that a lot of the expected benefits that that were supposed to come from computerization of medicine, like lowering the costs of healthcare haven't panned out, but we've seen a lot of unexpected consequences. Uh, uh, distancing of the patient and the doctor, doctors who have compute, bring computers into examination rooms end up looking at the screen about 25 to 50 percent of the time they're with the patient, and, both, and that's frustrating to both doctor uh, and patient, but also there's there seems to be a reduction in the quality of the medical records uh, because doctors start following templates instead of dictating notes. They start cutting and pasting from earlier uh, patient visits. And a lot of doctors now are complaining that, you know, when they when they read through a patient's record, uh, it, they might be able to get that record quicker because it's online. It's, it's coming through a computer. But when they read through it, the, the record is less valuable and less rich and less detailed um, and so all of these, 
were kind of rushing the, the, the federal government has spent like $30 billion to push to subsidize purchases of electronic medical record systems. And it's only after they're installed we start to realize that this may be intruding into the doctor-patient relationship and even the building of doctor skill in a way that we didn't anticipate. Um, and it uh, again, it underscores that when we automate work, particularly kind of this very subtle, nuanced work of a diagnostician, we need to be very, very careful about how we design the systems. And we're, so far, we haven't been very careful. Are there sort of um, examples that are the equivalent of the Royal Majesty story? In other words, in the Royal Majesty story, uh, you, you have a human being. He's supposed to look for the buoy. If he doesn't see the buoy, that means there's something wrong. Um, I assume the same thing is happening when people look at mammograms or whatever. In other words, are there situations where uh, the computer's telling you one thing, your own lion eyes are telling you something else, and you believe the computer? Yeah, there are studies of exactly that, radio, uh, radiologists who use, you know, now all x-rays and other diagnostic images are digitized. So what happens is you can start to bring in software to, as an aid uh, that gives you prompts, that tells the doctor, where, where should I look on this diagnostic image? And sometimes that's great. Sometimes that focuses the doctor's attention on an area where there is an abnormality. But studies show that it, it also often has the other effect. The doctor becomes so led by the software and focuses so much in this one area that he or she may miss abnormalities elsewhere in the image. Uh, and we see it in the way doctors are communicating as well. There's a there's a new paper out about the the gentleman who died of Ebola in Dallas, Thomas Duncan, that does implicate uh, that does suggest that the record the computerized record keeping system, because it was based on templates and checklists and so forth, kind of led the led the nurses and doctors to to the mis, initial misdiagnosis and played a role in that. Um, so these these there are growing signs that that these these kinds of systems can get in the way of effective medicine. So let me just get into one last area with you, Nicholas Carr. But the book, by the way, is called The Glass Cage: Automation and Us. So one of the questions that I had reading the book was. You know, there's sort of two ways that we could be going. One of them is we could be going sort of towards idiocracy. We can either be going to idiocracy or we can be going to Star Trek. So if we're going to idiocracy, that means increasingly important human skills will begin to atrophy. Instincts will erode. Um, and, and, in fact, mistakes will, will almost build on, on themselves. The errors in judgment we're making now will cause other errors in judgment, which will call, uh, cause other errors in judgment. And, and meanwhile, we won't be developing compensatory mental resources in, in order to deal with the all of those errors in judgment will get really stupid, uh, and, and a lot of mistakes will get made uh, that shouldn't have been made. Okay, that's scenario one. Scenario two is we're just in transition. You know, we're in a transition right now, and within 10, 15, 20 years, um, diagnostic computers will be really great. You just step in front of, uh, of some scanner, and it is like Star Trek. It'll tell you everything about yourself, everything that you really need to know. And We'll have automated cars that can all work with each other to avoid tra unnecessary traffic jams and accidents, uh, and in all of this stuff, you know, whether it's planes, trains, automobiles, healthcare, GPS, whatever it is that's happening right now, we'll have the bugs worked out of it so that, in fact, we really do get a better world out of automation. Um, what, you know, what's your reaction when, I, when I, I point to that fork in the road? I mean, it really is possible some of this stuff's going to get a lot better and, and be not dangerous, if anything, make us safer and happier. I guess there are, there are two reactions, one pragmatic and one philosophical. The pragmatic one is that 
we may indeed get a fully automated traffic system, fully automated pilots, fully automated medicine. That's foolproof. Uh, that's very, very hard to achieve, and it's going to be a long time before before we achieve that, if we do. And in the meantime, we're going to have people and computers working together uh, in in both routine situations and dangerous situations. So even if even if a machine utopia lies out ahead of us, we've got a long time where we have to make sure we design systems to maintain human skills as well as get the best out of computers. And the philosophical question is, What's left for us when we, if we do achieve this total automation? And we know that people actually like to build skills and feel, feel fulfilled more when they're challenged in overcoming hard, uh, hard tasks than when they're sitting back and watching computer screens. Will, even if all our dreams come true, will that actually be a better world for us, for human beings? Uh, and that's, that's a trickier question. Yeah. Well, I'm a declinist at heart. So, um, uh, well, the book is The Glass Cage, Automation and Us by uh, Nicholas Carr, uh, the always fascinating Nicholas Carr, also the author of The Shallows. We're going to end with, uh, just to make it clear that these anxieties have been around for a while, a song by one of my personal heroes uh, written probably about 50 years ago, maybe a little, little bit more than 50 years ago. This is Alan Sherman with Automation. There's automation, I know. That was what was making the factory go. It was IBM. It was Univac. It was all those gears going clickety-clack. Dear, I thought automation was keen till you were replaced by a ten-ton machine. It was that computer that tore us apart, dear. Automation broke my heart. All right. As I said at the beginning of the show, I think uh, I speak for many people of Connecticut. If we'd known what kind of election this was going to be, we would have gotten on some kind of serotonin reuptake inhibitor that included epinephrine, too, and just you know, something really good and complex that could have gotten us through this very difficult time. However, the good news is uh, pretty soon it's going to be over. Tuesday night uh, it will be over. Uh, we will be at Real Art Waves. When I say we, uh, John, Dan- John Dankosky joins me in studio right now. He and I will be anchoring uh, WNPR's coverage that night along with a bevy of analysts and, of course, the greatest radio reporting routine- team ever assembled. Uh, but uh, even as we think, that the, this 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 election sliding into an angle of repose, new things happen all the time. <laughs> so actually, it's really true. This weekend, I was posting something, uh, writing up a post about sort of surprises for election night, things that could happen. I got it up. I put it on Facebook, and the first commenter said, "Well, you know, Visconti has just <laughs> <laughs> left the race." I said, "What?" <laughs> so uh, Joe Visconti, who was the uh, third party candidate in uh, running uh, essentially a sort of a Second Amendment oriented campaign, um, has announced uh, on Sunday that he's dropped out. And you've had some experience interviewing him in the past and asking him, you know, what his overall game plan was. Was he in it to the bitter end? Yeah. And he said over and over again, I'm going to stay in it until the bitter end. I I want to actually uh, try to win this campaign. Now, everyone always says they want to win the campaign. He told me this morning when we talked that he felt like he needed some 400,000 voters supporting him and he knew he wasn't going to get that. 
he probably could have known that before, you know, Sunday when he made this announcement. But at the end of the day, he decided over the weekend that it was important for him to throw his support behind Tom Foley. He took a look at one of the three or four polls that we've seen in the last couple of days, the PPP poll that uh, showed uh, Foley now losing a slight lead to Dan Malloy. And he said, I've got to do something. I got to get into this. I talked to him this morning, Colin. It, we had a fascinating conversation, as I always do with Joe Viscani. You want to hear a little bit yeah, about what yeah. he said? So, um, first of all, we played Joe some tape from when he appeared on Where We Live recently, where he suggested Tom Foley had been asleep and hadn't learned uh, anything since his last race for governor. Um, I asked him if anything had really changed about his feelings for Foley since then. He, he said he, he may still be a better candidate, but but uh, you know he's turning things over to Tom Foley. It got down to one of these things where. What's not necessarily the lesser of two evil, but who can actually get us on another course? If it's not going to be me, it has to be Tom. And it gets down to things like that in the moment where you know you may be the better candidate, you may have the better ideas, and all of that, but the public isn't, you know, they they know the major candidates. So with the two major candidates, and this is what I looked at when I saw the polls, can we help Tom get over? Um, And I, I think we can. I mean, we, we've seen this kind of thing in the past where yeah. and we, we most often see it in primary seasons when the primary is resolved and, and quite frequently your opponent could even become your running mate. So the person during the primary season whom you've described as inadequate and stupid and uh, engaging in voodoo economics and what, whatever horrible thing you've branded them with is now the person you're running alongside. So we've seen this before that over the course of this campaign, Visconti's had very many negative things to say about Tom Foley. But this is sort of a little different two days before the election. Well, it's coming so late, and even just if you listen to what he said, you know, Tom's not necessarily uh, necessarily the lesser of two evils. This is not a ringing endorsement that is coming <laughs> forth from from Joe Visconti. And of course, another thing that that happened is we look at this latest Quinnipiac poll, which I know we want to get into, Colin. There have been all of these polls in the last couple of days, and I think this is an important piece. One of the reasons Joe Visconti is leaving the race is because he thinks that he's going to throw support now to Tom Foley. But if you look at the way this Quinnipiac poll shapes up, he's still polling 8% in a three-way race, about 4% of support coming from uh, folks on the Democratic side, meaning polling from Dan Malloy, about 5% from Republicans. It's it's actually seems in some ways, Colin, like he could be pulling from both places. He, he's leaving the race. might not even help all that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for a long time, Visconti has been sort of a monopoly game free parking spot. If you're unhappy with both of your choices, <laughs> you could think about voting for Joe Visconti. You could tell a pollster if you're uncomfortable, uh, if you're upset with Governor Malloy, but you also don't fancy Tom Foley. You have I – mean, and I think people for some reason or other don't like to say – and maybe they don't like to do it either. I'm going to leave that line blank. You know, I'm <laughs> going to vote in all the other races, but I'm just simply not going to call her in any circle there. For some reason or other, people don't like that. So I think one of the things they've been doing with Joe Visconti is to, is to say, I'm voting for him because I don't like the other two choices. And one thing we have to emphasize is there is nothing now that would stop anybody from doing exactly that tomorrow. Well, of course, another thing that we need to take into consideration is even though there's not a very easy absentee ballot system in Connecticut, a number of people have already cast absentee ballots for Joe Visconti. And so I asked him, what do you say to all those people who've already thrown a lot of support behind you, maybe a few dollars, uh, they've already cast a vote for you, and now you say you're dropping out of the race? Yeah, well, that's that's part of the process when you watch what's happening in this race, very tight race in a dogfight. As a candidate, as a person, they're going to need to trust my decision. I just couldn't sit here and watch myself not help the better of the two candidates get in, and, and I had to make a call. 
because the polls were sliding against him, and maybe it's not enough. Maybe it isn't going to be enough. I, it, to me, anyway, I mean, I, I'll, my own reaction to this has been that I actually thought he was sort of an important force in this um, campaign season it's, it's simply because so often it seemed as though Foley and Malloy weren't adequately engaging with significant issues and debates. They weren't taking good care of the process. Uh, I was very hopeful that John Pelto also would qualify uh, for the, for a ballot position and then participate in the debates. Uh, I thought it was useful and helpful to a certain degree when Visconti participated in the debates. But it seems to me that this, this is a, a very odd situation and, and to have clamored the way that he did to be in debates and to be upset when he wasn't included in debates <laughs> And suddenly, in this very abrupt fashion, to announce that he's dropping out in a way that I'm not persuaded at all will help uh, Tom Foley. A for the reason that you mentioned that you know he seems to pull from both camps. Also, I just don't think people can straighten this thing out in their minds fast enough. I mean, I've never seen anybody drop out <laughs> two days before an election, but I think you're just sort of still on the ballot, and people vote for he, you. He said something sort of funny to me. He he said, "We're not going to try to get my name off the ballots everywhere because I don't think that's really possible." Uh, Denise Merrill, the Secretary of the State, has affirmatively said, "No, that's that's not possible." And with all the problems that we've had with ballots uh, in places like Bridgeport in the past, probably not advisable to try to get his name off the ballot. So he will indeed be there. Real quick, Colin, one of the things that he really has been clamoring about is that neither of the two candidates have, as you say, been specific about very key things. For instance, Governor Malloy is saying there's not a deficit coming in the next few years. We've taken care of that. There's no deficit. Tom Foley has not necessarily said that, but he hasn't really talked much about the deficit and hasn't talked about how he'll deal with it. So um, essentially, Joe Visconti is saying the next governor, Republican or Democrat, is probably going to have to raise taxes. So I asked him about that. So, so you think a governor, Tom Foley, would, would have to raise taxes to get out of this, this budget deficit? I, I don't know how we can grow, and this is truthful, I don't know how we can cut enough, even if the legislature agreed with it, and mothball enough programs uh, for us not to have some form of uh, a tax increase unless we grow completely out of it in a miracle situation. Um, I don't see it happening. And I see someone having to do something. Um, again, these are things I didn't speak with Tom Foley about, um, but we will uh, we will press him when he's governor. Well, I mean, he, maybe he could have. Because, in fact, I, I do think the debate that you moderated, in particular, Joe Visconti said things about the budget that were clearer and, and to my way of thinking, more true than either candidate has said. Uh, and... Uh, I, I, the, another thing that I learned from the debate that you moderated and now from this latest development is it doesn't really make any sense to wildly flatter another person under these circumstances because Dan Malloy spent a huge amount uh, of the time that he's been on stage with Joe Visconti <laughs> telling Joe Visconti what a wonderful person he is, uh, what a good man he is, and how although they disagree, he thinks Joe Visconti is wonderfully honest. And so his reward for that is a gift wrap prize on his doorstep this morning of <laughs> Joe Visconti saying that uh, Dan Malloy is such an awful candidate and that he really feels as though he has to wholeheartedly support Tom Foley. So. Well, at least half-heartedly support Tom <laughs> Foley. Now, uh, another thing to, to mention here, Colin, is you know you had moderated a debate, the CBA debate, that only two of the candidates were in Foley and Malloy. Uh, I moderated a debate in which all three candidates were there, and it was the only time all three candidates were there. Then we had the very odd situation of Tom Foley sitting out one of the debates. We had the final debate of the debate season over this past weekend, and of course, Mark Davis from WTNH had uh, what they called a, a little bit of a forum. It wasn't exactly a debate in the in the normal sense, and they're sitting in kind of comfy chairs, and it's on a Sunday morning, and I have to say, as odd as this <laughs> entire campaign season has been, this may have been even the oddest thing we've seen yet. Yeah, this 
this uh, this has come up a few times before that Tom Foley has this boat. Um, <laughs> he has a boat. It's a yacht, and it's called the Odalisque. Uh, and the Odalisk has uh, that word has a history, and it really did mean a woman in a harem or a concubine, something along uh, those lines. And so, I guess do we do we have audio of this. Yeah, we just have a very short clip. This is this is uh, uh, Tom Foley addressing this issue. Uh, Dan Malloy actually made reference because of a question that was asked. Each of them had owned boats at one point. Dan Malloy doesn't have his boat anymore, and uh, Dan Malloy made reference to the fact that uh, Tom Foley's boat is uh, called the same thing as a sex slave. Odalisk really means uh, a a beautiful woman, a beautiful thing in the art world. It doesn't mean a sex slave. I, I just found it funny because our, our own Ray Hardman has been doing a story about how neither of the two candidates is really engaged in the idea of arts right. and tourism and culture as, a, as an economic driver. They really don't talk about it at all. And now, just a few days before the campaign, they're, t- they're talking about classical art and right. the term Odalisque. And I was going to mention this, <laughs> this to you off the air, but I feel as though I could get a much better handle on this if, if I could go to the Louvre and look at uh, Jean-Auguste uh, Dominique's Ang's uh, Grand Odalisque, which is the probably the ultimate classic Odalisque painting. I can just put it on the credit card I right now. If you want to just, if you could, just if zoom over just there, that, that's put, fine. Put an expense for me, and I would go look at that, <laughs> and I think uh, get some resolution in my mind. Very quickly here, uh, before we uh, go, have to go, we should just quickly mention, we are doing this thing on election night. Yes. We will be at Real Artways. We'll start on the air at 7 o'clock. Yeah, 7 o'clock all the way until 10 o'clock, and that's kind of a question mark there, because it may indeed go longer uh, if what has happened in the past happens once again. This is a very close race that may indeed go past 10 o'clock. What we're going to have there, Colin, we're going to have analysts, we're going to have reporters, we're going to have a whole bunch of fun hipsters having a, a good election night time. We're going to have some interesting events going on there, including a live band. There's actually a, some sort of a cat, ex- <laughs> cat exhibit we've had to work around, so there's actually going to be live cats. It's probably one of the dumbest things I've ever said yes to ever, um, but yet it's going to be enormously fun at Real Artways from 7 to 10. NPR coverage included, and then NPR coverage goes uh, on all night on WNPR after that. So just to be clear about that, you're invited to join us at Real Artways Please in do. person, and yes, we have... Um, no cover charge. We've got uh, all kinds of interesting people who will be there. If you're it. allergic to cats, right. maybe stay home. But uh, Dan Bray Mayor Mark Boughton making his debut as uh, uh, one of our Republican political analysts. Uh, that should be especially exciting. But if you decide not to join us in person, we'll be on the air, our, you know, just regular our airways uh, starting at 7. Uh, we'll also be streamable online. And uh, our online team, uh, led by Heather Brandon, is also going to be putting together special online text- textual coverage. Of we'll us. have all sorts of stuff online. It's WNPR.org, so you can follow us all night long, j- not just for the governor's race, but we're also going to be making sure that you know what's going on with a Senate race around the country from us and from NPR, too. What we're trying to tell you is you, you really don't need anybody else. No, we will, we're, we're everything. We'll take all of your needs. Everything that you could possibly need. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, thank you, John Nankoski. And we will be back after this to talk about, well, have you been to the movie theaters lately and why not? And is there anything they could do to get you to come? I'm going to get good luck back. I've had it with hard luck. Black. I've had it with taking black. I've had been used. I'm going to get good luck back. I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to be where it's at, wherever I choose. I'm going to get And we're back. And let me quickly, quickly tell you that Kion Wolf is out with a cold today. That's why you're not hearing Kion Wolf. I have to thank uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's done an amazing job pulling this whole show together. And whoever's on the phones over there, Jackie Filson or 
uh, Josh, I don't know, I can't even see. Some outstanding intern uh, has uh, helped us out. Our tweet master, Greg Hill, is at WNPR. Colin, he's uh, tweeting for us. You may tweet back at him. Uh, and there's uh, Katie Dolarski, our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry today was played by Joe Visconti. That was, by the way, I, we, I made a huge mistake, which is as, as we were going out, there was music going out. That was Joe Visconti singing. He's um, a Renaissance man. Uh, so uh, it's time to stop thinking about politics and more uh, time to start thinking about going to the movies. We're heading into sort of the, the season of Oscar releases. You may be tempted to go and see uh, all the Oscar-worthy movies in the movie theater. Uh, you may be ready to go see Birdman, but you also may hesitate. Uh, there may be some reason you feel as though the movie theater isn't the place for you anymore. Uh, I think a lot of us have had that feeling for various reasons. Uh, joining us right now is Chris Ostendorf. He's a freelance writer uh, in L.A. He wrote a terrific piece for The Daily Dot about the uh, the crisis facing movie theater owners uh, in terms of attracting a new audience. And, 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 and it's also the fact that they are now offering different kinds of experiences. It really kind of depends on, on where you go, what kind of theater it is. Uh, so, Chris Ostendorf, I'm going to sort of um, hand things off to you. I guess the first thing to say is it feels like this is a semi-regular conversation that from time to time somebody, some critic or somebody like me announces, Movie theaters are in trouble. People aren't going. Uh, it costs too much. They have uh, home theater systems where they can uh, control their environment uh, much better. And then there's like some big, huge blockbuster summer and somebody else announces, no, movie theaters are fine. You're wrong. People still go to the movies. But there, you did see some evidence that, that there might be a reason for theater owners to, th- to rethink their paradigm a little bit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I think, uh, like you said, this is a conversation that gets brought up um, kind of again and again, or at least it has through the past few years um, from the Toronto Film Festival incident. Um, I mentioned where there's a guy who, uh, a critic who calls 911 during a screening because someone's talking, or um, you have the incident, I think, 2008, where, uh, where someone is shot because uh, they're talking in a movie theater, or... Um, you know, the, uh, the Alamo Draft House voicemail that sort of uh, went viral a few years ago that I, that I also mentioned. Um, Which um, you, I, let's, just, let's just pause and mention that one, because that's where I had not, until I read your article, I had not known that one. So this is at the Al- Alamo chain, uh, a young woman, well, the Alamo chain in particular, they really do have a problem with people texting, people with just glowing cell phone screens uh, in their movie theaters, and they, they warn people that they're, they're going to be kicked out if they do it. Uh, and this is a woman who had been cooked, kicked out. We would play the audio of this but it's full of profanities uh she it's a voicemail that she leaves for the alamo theater management saying all she was doing is like she was trying to do this she's trying to do that and they're treated her horribly and why do they throw her out and they now run this thing as, as an announcement before their their movies as a kind of comical way of telling people yeah this is what we're going to do we're going to throw your butt out if you're looking at your phone yeah i mean you know, i think with the um the alamo draft house uh, did there is definitely um, is definitely emblematic of sort of what they stand for as a theater um, and sort of a business model that uh, a lot of other theaters are sort of starting to adopt, although you know um, not many that strictly. Uh, you know, I I remember I had a lot of conversations uh, when that um, when that uh, first emerged a few years ago with um, fellow film lovers, and uh, there is you know there is a, almost a certain a certain level of uh, pretentiousness or a, a certain level of obnoxiousness in terms of taking this voicemail 
and kind of using it to prop their theater up and, you know, talk about how, how great they are and how seriously they take themselves. That being said, I think having, you know, having experienced uh, Alamo Draft House, it's, it really is a phenomenal theater. And, um, you know, that's part of what you're paying for when you go there. Like I said, they do these, they'll do participation nights where you're encouraged to talk at the screen and enjoy, uh, enjoy an experience like that. However, you know, I do think, uh, you know, that voicemail, it should let you know, they take the stuff very seriously, the talking, the texting. And I think, you know, again, it comes down to that's part of what you're paying for when you go to that theater. I think one of the most effective things that I've seen as a movie goer, um, I'm located here in Connecticut, but when I'm in New York, one theater I go to a lot on Houston Street, I think, I think it's called the Landmark Sunshine Theater. And one of the things that they do is before any movie starts, a human being walks into the movie theater. I mean, this is a multiplex, you know, multi-screen place, but a human, human being walks down and, and makes some announcements and basically, you know, greets everybody and, and sort of says something about, you know, maybe what the movie is or, uh, and then makes some of those announcements about not talking or texting and using cell phones and things like that. And you suddenly feel, even though the human being is, you know, 21 years old and living with his parents, or I mean, who knows? You know, who, it's still, it's a person who is saying something to you about the establishment's commitment to a certain level of behavior from the audience and a certain quality of the movie-going experience. And I, I think it actually penetrates people <laughs> in, in a way that maybe nothing you could put up on the screen ever would. Yeah, I actually, I 100%, uh, I 100% feel the same way. Um, there is something about putting a human face uh, to it that I think makes people take it more seriously. Plus, it just kind of um, reinforces the idea that I think, hey, you know, you're at the movies with other people. There are other pe- people who are going to be experiencing this, too. And especially depending on the movie, you know, um, it's, it's important to really respect that and be polite. I, yeah, I happen to actually love that. There's something... Um, uh, there's something almost sort of wonderfully antiquated about that that notion. This um, this person who comes in and makes a few announcements at a time. I remember uh, ArcLight Cinemas here in uh, here in Los Angeles. They do the same thing. I remember going to see Boyhood and someone uh, coming up uh, ahead of time and saying, "I've seen this movie three times. That's nine hours of my life." And uh, you know, after you know, after making an announcement like that, and he goes through, he does the whole no text, you know, talking thing. It's like you know, clearly, uh, you know, <laughs> this person took this movie seriously enough to see it three times. Hopefully, we can all you know see it one time and you know respect each other enough to uh, to be polite uh, through the experience. Well, and uh, you know, we began our, our show today with uh, Nicholas Carr, whose new book is called The Glass Cage. It's about automation. And the other experience that you have in movie theaters now is if there's something goes wrong with the projection equipment, it is quite frequently the case, if you're at a big multiplex, that there's no one on the premise who's making more than $12 an hour, and there's certainly nobody there who has any idea of what to do about the projector. That's all automated. It's operated by computer codes. The nearest technician who could do anything about it may be 100 miles away. Um, and, and I think that's frustrating to people, too. And it sends the message to them, I'm not in a very important place. I'm not in a place that curates uh, its, its cultural materials very well. And so I can talk and be an idiot and text my friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is sadly sort of indicative of at least some American multiplexes. Um, you know, and I have to admit, there's a sense in which, for me, sound and picture problems drive me far crazier, uh, you know, at times than talking or texting. 
Um, and, you know, it's true. There's not really a lot you can do about it. You know, you can go out and you can say something to someone and, you know, you should definitely not be rude because whoever you're going to be talking to, it's certainly not their fault. But, you know, like you said, it, you know, it may be, uh, it may be a problem with the machine. There's no one who can even get there to fix it um, in the vicinity. And, you know, it, it is sort of sadly, you know, you that's why you know there are i think more and more luxury theaters uh luxury theater chains popping up um to offer an experience where you know you may even you know that's frequently a message you get sometimes before these movies someone will come out and and they'll say you know i'm going to stand up to the side and monitor sound and picture quality and that's not to say that necessarily they could do anything either if there were issues but i think it says to the audience like look again what you're paying for here is an experience where we take what we're showing seriously uh, and, you know, we're going to try to uphold the quality of that. Chris, uh, Chris, uh, last question uh, that we have before we uh, have to go. Chris Ostendorf, a freelance writer in L.A., wrote this article for The Daily Dot. Um, so, yeah, you have these new luxury theaters, and they often have rather elaborate uh, food opportunities, um, You know, uh, things uh, that you can bring to your seat that are not just popcorn but actual meals. You can get wine. You can get other things. Does this – I mean, the fear I think that a lot of people have is, oh, well, this will once again cultivate um, a moviegoer who's kind of indifferent to the movie. You know, if I'm sitting there eating my cheeseburger or God knows what, um, you know, how likely is it that I'm focused on the movie? Did you sort of get a sense of, of how that's working out? You know, I think that's a really interesting point. I know, you know, going back to the draft house again, I know some people have said they find it almost, uh, they find it almost ironic that uh, they're so worried about distraction when they're a theater that have uh, waiters basically coming in and out to deliver food frequently. Um, you know, again, personally, I think it comes down to, the business model of uh, of the theater, um, you know, food can certainly be a distraction at the movies, and anyone who's ever sat near a loud eater uh, knows this to be the case. Not that there's really anything you can do about that. Uh, however, I think with certain theater chains, there are certain theater chains who do a good job of um, of making the theater making the theater nice enough, you know, amenities. Uh, better seating, you know, choose your seat ahead of time, um, that kind of suggests, you know, hey, this is something to be taken seriously. So even if you are walk, walking in with, a, a, you know, a, a bucket of food, uh, <laughs> you know, that there's there's at least some semblance of, uh, of respect. Perfect, uh, perfect place to end, Chris Ostendorf. We absolutely have to go. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to everyone who listened. We'll be back tomorrow. It'll be Election Day. God help us all.